having been on retreat, retreat here for a week, even though we're in silence, we can feel how strong a uh, connection and how uh, aligned we feel with one another. What a, what a strong bond we have, how intimate we feel with each other, even without having spoken much to each other. And part of the, uh, some of the conditions that give rise to that kind of unspoken but heartfelt connection is that we have been um, not just silent by not speaking, but we have been affirming our uh, valuing the Dharma that we hear, um, participating in the discussions, uh, practicing together, and uh, because there's a unity of, uh, or a singularity of what we're, what we're doing here, we're, we're exclusively um, hearing, practicing, discussing our practice, the Dharma, things that matter deeply to our hearts in our lives. And when we anticipate, you know, the end of the retreat and leaving here and going back into our lives, there's, may I already feel a impending sense of loss. And what we recognize and, and know of that is not that just we're leaving each other or leaving here, but we leave this common understanding we have. And when we enter the world outside of the protection of this retreat, we, you know, we just meet a proliferation of ideas and behaviors and thoughts and activities and our mind gets dispersed. Our mind goes in many, many different directions and we deal with a lot of different energies and people and we lose something. In part because our communication gets so dispersed and so dissipated and it's not so singular, it's not so, maybe not so purposeful all the time. And a large part of our sense of leaving and what we miss is this dispersion. We just disperse into the proliferating mind, our, our, our own and, and the mind of others. And so we'll, we'll see how challenging it is to continue to connect with each other tomorrow uh, and with others that aren't on retreat when we, as we interact with others in the world. Uh, we'll see how difficult it is to really reach from the depth of where we've been exploring our own heart and to share that with others. Partly because it's hard to speak about these things 
and it's you know not always as universally accepted and received as openly and as respectfully as it is here. And so we feel a little guarded and we feel a little hesitant and we feel maybe more easily threatened or vulnerable. And we see then, we feel then just how precious it is to um, live in a community like this where we speak carefully. And it's not to say that we can't try that in our life. We can, but we do. And there's something special about <clears throat> having this kind, this kind of care and precision and uh, heartfeltness that we share with each other here. So just to acknowledge that. And it, a lot of it happens through silence and the uh, purpose for which we're here. The Buddha, as I've mentioned in his Noble Eightfold Path, the practices to be developed to awaken to the way things are and to learn to live in alignment with the truth of our life uh, includes three trainings, and one of them is this includes this training on right speech. Right speech being the speech, the kind of speech that leads to less suffering for ourselves and others. So, in some ways, we might think of the you know the final exam of this retreat is uh, tomorrow, as we enter the mainstream again, can we remain aware? Can we check our attitude of mind frequently? Can we remain aware? Can we be as open in the world as we are here? Can we be in touch with ourselves? Can we share the truth of our experience? And can we take this awareness into the fullness of our life? You know, sometimes I think we just assume that we cannot. And yet, why not? <laughs> so I want to speak about speaking tonight. And I want to speak about the five conditions for right speech or the five conditions that conduce to speaking in a way that doesn't cause harm. I want to start by reading a poem by William Stafford, one of the great poets. It's called The Ritual to Read to Each Other. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world, and following the wrong God home, we will miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug, that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts 
the horrible errors of childhood, storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade, holding each elephant's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs, but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes, no, or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. The fragile sequence of our words to each other and from each other is fragile. It's delicate. It is the warp and weft of our community, the tapestry of our community. And if we're careless, or we just blow it off, that shrug breaks the sequence, breaks the thread. And our mutual life, our shared communication, where are we going with this, just heads off into the ditch, into the dark, somewhere unintended. So it's really important that we, as William Stafford says, that awake people be awake and be really clear in what it is that we're trying to say. Yes. No. Maybe. Words have power. What we say really does matter. And the karmic results, the consequences of what we say are both immediate and far-reaching. We've all been hurt by what was said and we carry that pain long into the future. So we should carefully consider what our motivation is before we speak. And when I say motivation, I mean both the impulse, the moment, but also why. Why, why are we speaking? We speak for many reasons. You know, sometimes loneliness compels us to connect, seek out others to connect with. Sometimes we feel ill at ease being quiet in a group. Often emotions, excitement, anger, affection, grief, exert pressure to be expressed. And the proliferations, the papanches of who I am, what I want, and what I believe are ubiquitous. The intended effect of our speaking is equally wide-ranging. We can speak to inform, to perform, to connect, to share, to help, to impress, to deceive, to confuse, to intimidate, to titillate, threaten, excite, shock, subdue, entice, and so on. And often, we don't recognize where we're coming from when we speak. And these motivations, these 
they are spoken loudly, even if we don't know what we're saying or how we're conveying why we speak. <clears throat> so it's helpful to consider when you speak what it is that you really want. Do you want to be right? Do you want to be believed? Do you want to be helpful? Do you want to convey some knowledge? Like trying to convince somebody of something? <clears throat> it's difficult to know what our motivation is in speaking. Conversation flows so quickly, so smoothly, that we don't even notice often where we're coming from or what the effect of our words has been when they've been received. If we're clear in our intentions and our motivation in speaking, and we speak carefully, then we don't have to feel remorse or regret. But the impact of what we say may be different than the intention we had in saying it. And so it's wisdom that is mindful wisdom that is going to recognize what the effect or the impact of our speaking has had, even if our intention is otherwise. So the Buddha offered these several suggestions for speaking. And the first, he says, is that we should speak with a friendly heart, meaning we should have loving kindness, we should have compassion, we should have care for the other person. Because when we do that, we are affirming our connection with them. We care. And so we affirm our understanding and our interconnectedness with them. And speaking from a place of caring and loving and being compassionate um, sustains, nourishes, nurtures our relationship. We develop the qualities of caring, of love, of compassion, even as we observe our own mind in practice. Because our own mind is talking to us all the time. And we're listening. And we're talking back <laughs> to our own mind. And what is the tone of voice that you speak to yourself with? That's why we take these little, you know, selfies and emojis and check it out. What are we saying to ourselves? If we check and see that our thoughts, our feelings, our expression of what it is we're going to say is coming from a place of caring and love, even if we use the wrong words and we're inarticulate, the message will get across. Because love and the expression of love is louder, is more recognizable than the words. Speech which is not friendly is called in the Pali language Pisunawada. And Pisuna means fiend or demon. And it is mean-spirited speech. It is speech that is such as uh, backbiting, it's malicious, it's slanderous. It's speech which is used to beguile, deceive, cheat, defame, malign, or damage another's reputation. And in doing so, that kind of speech breaks the connection that the speaker has 
or that two others that you're speaking to or about has. We may not think what we're saying has the intention of harming another, but sometimes we find ourselves speaking to someone about someone who's not present, things that we could never say to them in person. So it's a check. It's a, it's a, it's a little self-checking mechanism. When you find yourself speaking to someone about a third person that's not present, just ask yourself, could I say to them what I'm saying about them? And if not, consider what the effect of your speaking to this third person is having upon them. That is a really high bar when speaking. If you try, you'll see. When we heighten our awareness of the divisiveness of speech or the connectivity of speaking, we begin to restrain our habit of speaking, and we speak so as to nurture the connection and make peace with those who might be not at peace, even with ourselves. So, speaking with a loving heart can mend or begin to heal fractured relationships. Some of the division that we express in our speech is because of our attachment to views and opinions, to beliefs, to uh, perceptions. And when we put them out with a kind of force of not loving and not nurturing the relationship, not nurturing the connection, then it has the effect, it can have the effect of creating division or distance between ourselves and others. Second condition for well-spoken speech is to speak gently, not harshly. Much of what we communicate is expressed by tone, volume, posture, gesture, facial expression, as well as the words, the meaning of the words. And so it's important to monitor to be aware of, all of that in speaking. Because so easily, as we all know, more is communicated by a look or a grimace or a sneer than all the words of, that we can muster. And those displays of our true mind state are so quick and so accurate we can't pretend otherwise. Speech which is not gentle is called furusawada, and it's crude, cruel, harsh, unkind, fierce, severe. When we speak in such a way as to curse, 
I must apologize. I sometimes do use pretty kind of cursy language, but it's it's a habit, not not well thought out. But anyway, sometimes speech which is crude, harsh, cruel, rough, fierce, curses to belittle, to taunt, to shame someone for some quality or attribute that they exhibit. It can be their class, their race, their uh, sexual orientation preference. It can be their size, shape, texture, color. And you know, when we speak in that way to belittle others, we're really expressing a discomfort we have with ourselves. So, the biblical phrase, judge not, lest ye be judged, comes to mind. It's not that somebody else is going to judge you, but if you're judging, you're judging yourself. Hmm. Okay, when we pay attention to our speech so as not to be harsh, not to be crude, not to belittle, not to taunt, then we speak in ways to reach the heart of the other person, to try to reach out. And it doesn't mean that we have to be just kind of like Pollyanna-ish, just like "Mm," whatever that is, but we do speak in a way that is soft and gentle and loving and trying to connect with the heart. And the heart is really sensitive, as you know. And when we do, or as we even try to, then we create the space for intimacy. If we can be intimate with ourselves, we have more likelihood that we can be intimate with another. If we can't be soft and gentle with ourselves, it's going to be really hard to be intimate with others. So polite words engender love, create a feeling of openness and connectedness, and such speech is blameless, blameless and often inspires others. It helps us feel at ease when we speak that way. So when we speak gently, we don't speak of others' faults. When I was in the monastery in uh, Burma, Saito Upandita had invited uh, a number of young monks. Uh, they were a little younger than I. I was 35 to 40, and they were 25 to 35. And they were, in some ways, some of the best monks of Burma. Number one or two in the national exams, those who come to the meditation center and progress and have the most faith, practice, progression progress of insight and they're just very uh, just very bright their minds are just lit up and so he invited them to come and train at the monastery to learn English and to train with him and to observe him in teaching when he teaches and they were being trained to be not quite missionaries, but to be the resident Burmese monks in Burmese cultural centers around the world. Now, you know, 25, 30 years later, 
They're in all the big cities of the world. You know, there's a dozen here in the U.S. of these monks that were living in this little enclave in the monastery when I was there. And occasionally I'd have an opportunity to go see them for one thing or another, meet with them, talk to, talk to one or two of them, sometimes just to learn how to wear my robes when I first ordained, and there were a few other things. They loved to try to practice speaking English. So they were all too ready and willing to talk, but they weren't supposed to talk to the foreigners. So it was a little bit... I couldn't get them to speak about each other or themselves one bit. They wouldn't... And even though they were all bright and uh, really exceptional, well-known for, for their scholastic ability or their meditative uh, capabilities, they wouldn't, they wouldn't acknowledge it about themselves or about each other. And I really got the sense that they had this care for the fabric of their community, knowing that the fabric of their community is as fragile as every word that they speak about each other, to each other. <clears throat> because once we, once we let out, you know, some harsh, some unkind, some cruel, some critical comment, you can't take it back. <laughs> it's out there. And it touches hearts wherever it goes. You know? So we could say that the fabric of the Sangha is as fragile as the intention of any single member in speaking. So too with us. So when I first uh, prepared this talk, I looked at the uh, 227 rules for monks. Monks live by rules. There's 227 main rules. And there's a lot of footnotes. They say there's like 90 million, 90,000, 90, 90 million thousand. There's a lot about everything. But there are more rules about speaking than any other topic. And some of the rules have to do with the actual liberation, the direction of liberation and speaking that interferes with liberation. But a lot of them had to do with preserving the harmony of the Sangha. How to, how to speak, when to speak, what to speak of, who to speak to, in a way that would preserve the community of monks and their relationship to the nuns and their relationship to lay people. So there are a lot of rules. And there were... Uh, the prohibitions against certain kinds of speech, which had some really colorful names, and one of them was called bean supery. You know, like dinner? Bean supery speech, which is mostly false and only slightly true. And they had a lot of other really fanciful names for different kinds of, different kinds of speech. But it just gives an indication of how important speaking is for preserving our sense of community, whether it's your household or your workplace or here or wherever, whatever community you participate in. The third uh, condition for skillful speech is to speak the truth. And this is the precept which we've taken uh, each morning. Uh, the fourth precept, to refrain from uh, 
to undertake the training to refrain from speaking falsely. And, of course, when you're practicing noble silence, as we are here, it's a little easier. <laughs> but nevertheless, you may have noticed, when you do have the opportunity to speak, whether it's ask a question or comment or speak in a small group, how easy it is to embellish, exaggerate, confused by omission, and it's easy. I mean, it just is so quick that we just, we don't realize, we don't think that we're creating or telling an intentional lie, but someone doesn't get the right picture. So as we, oh, you know, the Bodhisattva who became the Buddha 2,500 years ago, at, during the lifetime of a prior Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, eons and eons and eons ago, there was this ascetic, excuse me, a Sumedha. And he was a ascetic who had been practicing, I mean, an ascetic who was practicing in the forest. And it is said that he had perfected his practice to the point where if he heard a single word of teaching, of the Buddha Dipankara, the Buddha of his day, he would have become fully, fully awakened. But he went to town on his alms round one day and he saw that everybody was preparing for some kind of celebration, inquired what was going on, heard that the Buddha Dipankara was coming to town. So he wanted to meet this, this Buddha. And so he was assigned a section of the road to prepare to sweep and to have some flowers or whatever it is. And when the Buddha, when Dipankara Buddha came into view, he saw, through the, through the power of his own mind, he saw the radiance of the Buddha. He saw the, the quality of heart and the radiance, and he just felt inspired to emulate Dipankara Buddha. And in his heart, he had the aspiration to practice in order to become a Buddha. And Dipankara Buddha recognized that quality of thought in this ascetic and checked him out and realized, oh, that this, this ascetic would in some future lifetime become a Buddha. And so he confirmed to the ascetic Sumedha that his aspiration to become a Buddha would be fulfilled. But that meant that he was now a bodhisattva. And a bodhisattva doesn't get enlightened until they attain their own Buddhahood. And so for hundreds of lifetimes after that, Dipankara, uh, the ascetic Sumedha's stream of consciousness, lived through hundreds of lifetimes in order to perfect the paramis, those ten uh, wholesome qualities of heart and mind that we too develop practice in order to deepen our own understanding. Generosity being first among them, along with sila, keeping the precepts, truthfulness, patience, loving-kindness, equanimity, resolve, effort, patience, and the few that I can't remember. Among them is truthfulness. And it is said that in all those hundreds of lifetimes, from the time he was the ascetic Sumedha until he became the Buddha Gotama of our time, 
those hundreds of lifetimes, he never didn't keep and speak the truth. Hundreds of lifetimes. Always kept this precept to speak the truth. Because after all, what we're doing here is practicing the Dharma. The Dharma is the truth. And we're practicing in order to realize that the Dharma, to realize our own truth. And how can we really expect to discover the truth, to realize the truth within ourselves if we can't speak it? So I am going to ask you a couple of questions. Have you, I mean, we know the power of those who speak the truth, whether it's Martin Luther King or Aung San Suu Kyi or Nelson Mandela or others who just have this resolve and this capacity to articulate the truth for them or what they see and how it is. And we know that those, and if you know others in your life who have a real commitment to speak the truth, they, they have a power. So, you know, the question for us is, have I, have you made a commitment to yourself to always speak the truth? You know how easy it is to just kind of like shade. Well, okay. So then the next question is, are you a liar? Well, uh, we don't want to say yes to either one of those. And so we fall in the middle of like, well, I tell the truth when it's convenient and easy. And if it gets a little dicey or threatening, then maybe a little white lie. Or not quite speaking the truth. Well, you know, we all understand that socially sometimes it seems more efficacious and kind to not tell the truth, right? Because people will be hurt, or they'll feel they'll feel pain anyway. Not that we're not that we're causing them pain, but they will feel hurt. And we we make this decision to well accept the karma of not quite telling the truth. What's the karma of not telling the truth? I don't know. But it becomes the truth becomes more vague, more unapproachable, more uh, less clear if we can't speak the truth. And so it's something to consider. Um, yeah. Because the power of self-deception is immense. We have this immense capacity to deceive ourselves. And and we are susceptible to being deceived by others. Now, we live in a culture that thrives on deception, that condones deception, that expects deception, whether it's politically or out of Wall Street, or Hollywood, or whatever. We don't, we don't expect people to tell the truth. We are so cynical, and we're so jaded, and we're so disbelieving 
who suffers when we're cynical? Who suffers when we're disbelieving? We do. But that's the conditioning of our culture. That's the conditioning of our society. We may give lip service to always tell the truth, and yet we know, and we see, and we feel, and we participate in this culture of deception. So, we have to ask ourselves, is this, is our commitment to the truth sufficient to liberate the mind? Hmm. I don't know. What's going to be required? Well, maybe speaking the truth. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Let's think about that. There's, uh, there are these four rules as a monk. Four rules as a monk that if you break one of these rules, you cannot, you automatically are disqualified from being a monk for the rest of your life. Most rules can be, you can confess, and sometimes you have to do a penance or probation or something like that, but you can confess them and still remain a monk. But of these four rules, one of them is about speaking. Now think about this. These are, these are men, monks and, and nuns, women, who have made a commitment to really devote their life to awakening. And one of the rules is about speaking, which they, if they break, that's it. Their life as a monk and nun is over. You can't reordain. Okay. And the rule is, if they knowingly speak about their meditative attainments falsely. If they say something about their practice that's not true. That's it. Why would that be so significant? Why? I mean, they're just kind of like stretching the truth a little bit. Well, it's because as a, as a monk, I felt, uh, and it's, it's interesting, you know, the day before I was a monk, I'm walking around in lay clothes and anonymous in the monastery. It's just another one of those foreigners here to practice. And the day I shaved my head and put on robes, it was like, instantly, people stopped paying respect to you, stopping to, to, to bow to you, and because you're no longer personal Steve, you now become a representative of a commitment to awakening, to the Dharma, you're, you're, you're an example of that kind of commitment and integrity of practice. And that's the role you play in lay people's life. They look to you, they respect you, they value you, they honor you, they support you, because you are an example to them of at least the aspiration to being a, a good human being, a noble or whatever, however you want to understand that. And when we speak falsely or we mislead or we, we kind of deceive people, that threatens their faith. And it's not just their faith in this lifetime, but if they lose faith in the possibility of practice, living with integrity, 
practicing with integrity, sincere and genuine aspiration for awakening, if they lose faith in that, that loss of faith may accompany them for lifetimes. And so, my carelessness as a monk can damage someone's aspiration for awakening and the end of their own suffering for lifetimes. That's an awesome responsibility. And so too, we should consider, even though we're not monks and nuns, we should consider how we speak about our own practice. Speaking to others, speaking to teachers, speaking to each other, speaking to people that don't practice. So that we're not misrepresenting, we're not making more of, we're not putting down, we're not deceiving, but we're accurate in how we express our commitment and understanding of practice. Ryokan was a hermit Japanese monk. I'm not sure which century, but a long time ago. Poet. He says, if you speak delusion, everything becomes a delusion. If you speak the truth, everything becomes the truth. Followers of the Buddha's way. Why do you so earnestly seek the truth in distant places? Look for delusion in truth in the bottom of your own heart. So a commitment to always tell the truth is rare in the world. It's a difficult and challenging commitment for each one of us. But you remember the story about the the little boy who was assigned to guard the sheep of the village and he was given the sheep take out into the pastures and to look over them during the day so that they wouldn't be damaged, harmed, get lost, stolen. And out of his sheer boredom one day he just said, ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a trick on those village, my my." village friends, folks, parents. So he cried, wolf, 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 there's a wolf. And the, the village people knew that, oh, their, their sheep were going to get taken away. So they come running out to the field to save their communal property, the, the sheep. And the little boy there, he goes, ha, 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 fooled you, there's no wolf, ha, ha, ha. And he had a big kick out of that. And they said, don't you do that. Bad boy. Okay, he's reprimanded and back to his job. And, you know, a week later he gets bored again and he goes, That was fun, I'm going to do it again. Wolf, wolf! And all the people come running out and say, Yeah, wait, wait, wait. And he says, Ha ha ha, I fooled you again. There's no, there's no, no wolf. And they said, We told you not to do that. Now don't do that. That's not good, you know, to tell a lie like that. A week later he said, I'm going to try that again. Wolf! Wolf! And the people, actually, there was a wolf. And he saw the wolf and he goes, Wolf! Wolf! And the people in the village says, He's just kidding. There's no wolf. There's no threat to our communal property. They didn't go. They lost their communal property. Because that little boy had deceived them. So often that when he finally told the truth, they couldn't recognize it. That's something to think about in our current political situation. 
And the threat is not just that somebody's being deceptive, it's that by their deception we lose our communal property. Call it safety, call it security, call it integrity, call it community, whatever you, whatever you think it is, that's what's under threat. Those little kid stories are pretty, <laughs> pretty good. So, speaking the truth. The fourth condition for choice words, skillful speech, is that what we say should be beneficial to the to who hears it. So, if something is beneficial, then of course it's harmless. It supports. It nurtures. Useful sometimes. But, you know, sometimes out of just meeting someone, you know, we just chit-chat a little bit and, you know, um, okay. But if we make a habit of it, we often just kind of descend into frivolous, useless chit-chat for no purpose. We just fill up the silence uh, talking nonsensically about things that have no value. This speech is called Sampapalapawada, which kind of sounds like useless, frivolous speech, Sampapalapawada. And gossip is part of this kind of speech. So you might ask, well, what's the harm in the little light banter and greeting each other? And that's, that's fine. But, you know, it doesn't take long to establish a habit. And sometimes we just speak frivolously and can't get to anything more significant. Now, I'll just ask you, how, you know, so you, you know, someone's talking to you, you hear a juicy piece of gossip. How long does it take you to tell somebody else? <laughs> Can't wait to get out of there to, to go tell somebody. Or we, you know, anyway, you know what it is. But there's a lot of useless words floating around that just have no real value or meaning. Now, of course, at the time of the Buddha, he didn't have the internet, and didn't have Wi-Fi and all that, but nevertheless, there was still a lot of useless, frivolous speech. So, because monks and nuns have made a commitment to really aspire throughout their lifetime to uh, realize awakening and frivolous speech is useless. Well, that's just it. It's useless. Uh, the Buddha had some suggestions of topics that they should avoid because it was unedifying. It wasn't, it wasn't going to serve their purpose of awakening. So I'd like to share these topics with you. Now, we're not monks and nuns, and so we don't, we don't have to take on this, this as a training, but just to give you an idea. So, which topics of conversation were, for monks, unedifying include, or lowly includes talking about politicians? <laughs> well, he said kings and ministers, but politicians, robbers or other criminals, armies and wars, dangers, food, drink, clothes, beds, garlands, perfumes, cosmetics and jewelry, relatives, the opposite sex or whichever sex you're attracted to, heroes, the deceased, villages, towns, cities, countries, street and well gossip, Philosophical speculation on being and non-being in random and desultory chat that lacks a definite plan, regularity, purpose, and isn't committed to anything. 
Okay. There goes Hollywood, there goes all newspapers, all TV, all magazines, and most fiction. Now, what's left? <laughs> really? Think about it. what's left. Well, the Buddha had a list of topics that were edifying and supportive of those who wish to awaken, uplifting, uh, suitable for Dharma farers. Now, <clears throat> this is talk of uh, simplicity, contentment, seclusion, stillness and quiet, strenuous practice, the virtue, practice living virtuously, concentration, your understanding, the deliverance of the mind from suffering, the Dharma. So, you know, after you get home this weekend, you know, maybe <laughs> Friday night, Saturday, you're going out with friends. No, maybe you could suggest one of these topics as, <laughs> as a uh, uplifting topic for your conversation. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But actually, when you live in a spiritual community or when you live in a practice community, and I found this when I was on staff at the meditation center, it's like we're all there for the purpose of practicing and whatnot. And when we would, when we would remember to talk about the Dharma, it's very exciting. It's, it's, it's not just uplifting, it's, it's enlivening. And when I was teaching the three-month course, uh, at IMS for all those years. First couple of years I was teaching it. Oh, geez, we had, we had weekly teacher meetings. And they were just long, tedious, dry. It was just, I, I, I can't remember what, what the heck we were talking about because, you know, it's like who's going to give what talk, who's going to give the instruction, what day off this week, and, and, you know, just, you know, business, how we're going to run the retreat. And it was so depleting that one year we decided, okay, we're going to get done the business part of the meeting quickly. Just kind of get through it, and then we're going to talk Dharma. And what we decided to do that year, I think there were five of us teaching, is we were going to share our, I guess we'd have to say, our best meditation practice of all of our years, both in practicing Vipassana for insight and jhana for attaining concentration. And so each person had as long as it took to talk about their experiences, practicing, and how it was for them, and what their challenges were. It was unbelievable. It's so enlivening. And it's not just competitive, you know, bragging or anything. It's just like so uplifting, inspiring, and to, to talk about the Dharma, to talk about your practice. And now, now it's a regular thing, is to talk about practice. And you'll see how really uh, uplifting. Uplifting doesn't sound quite right. That sounds kind of, I don't know, something. Um, energizing. You know, really brightening, brightens the mind. And I, I've had this experience, and I think every teacher that I know of has had an experience like this, where <clears throat> sometimes it occurs, you're teaching a retreat, and it's your turn to give a talk in the evening, and you feel like not up to it. <laughs> Whether you're tired, or you're sick, or you're just out of it somehow. I mean, you know, being human, and you just feel, Pah. but, it, you know, it's your turn to give a talk, so you've got to give a talk. And, you know, you come in with your notes, you sit down, you start talking, and, and maybe you have symptoms of, you know, you got a sore throat, you got 
sniffles, you've got aches and pains and whatnot. Inevitably, you give a talk, at the end of the talk, so energized, so awake, no symptoms, totally healed. This happens a lot. Can't explain it. It's true. So, what we speak about matters. If it's beneficial, if it's about the Dharma, if it's about our aspiration, if it's about calling forth and nourishing the goodness within ourselves, our own heart, not being goody-goody, but I mean the real goodness, it is healing. So, we can extrapolate, we can reflect that when we talk about what is not good within us, or heading in the other direction, that it might not be healing, but it might be otherwise. Words have power. What we say really does matter. So, speaking of the Dharma is really uplifting. It reminds us, it activates our aspiration, our commitment. And when we speak about the Dharma, we serve as a kalyanamita, a spiritual friend to one another. And it doesn't have to be a teacher, you know, someone in my role. Anyone that's practicing the Dharma you can speak with and get inspired by and an infusion of uh, energy. And sometimes, you know, Kalyanamitas have to say things that are hard to hear. Still, it can be done with a loving heart. It can be done gently. It can be truthful. It can be beneficial, even if you don't want to hear it. <laughs> but sometimes that's what's needed. We need to be kind of set right and, and move on. So, the fifth condition for well-spoken speech is to speak what you have to say from a loving heart, gently, what's truthful and beneficial at the right time. Now we need to be prepared that the right time may never arrive. And even though we think it's urgent, it's beneficial, it's necessary, it's helpful, and we can do it lovingly, and whatnot, and it might never be a right time. And we have all been in situations where, in the heat of the discussion, to say what you really feel, that seems like it's really loving, and, it's really, and it's, it would be beneficial for you to hear this, or it would be beneficial for me to say this. And if we say it, of course, it doesn't, nobody, nobody gets the message. All they hear is the anger, they hear the urgency, they hear the stridency, and they don't get the message. And so, you know, having the patience to, um, to wait for the right time to say what needs to be said, or to say what will be beneficial to, to the relationship. As Upandita says, nothing is accomplished without patience. And we know that. You can't bake bread if you don't have patience. You certainly can't write a book or raise, raise children. And it said that uh, after the Buddha's awakening, as 
monks, as men wanted to become monks and ordained into the uh, order of monks, that for the first 20 years, they were all so well behaved, there didn't have to be any rules to guide the life of the community. There was just one kind of informal rule, be patient. And then after 20 years, some of the riffraff started signing up and getting ordained, and, you know, people who weren't fully awakened yet. And, you know, they had to, had to have some rules. And in fact, there was a group of monks, I can't remember what they were called, there was some name for them. There was a group of monks, their sole purpose was to get the Buddha to make new rules. So they would do whatever they could to just break, you know, act out in such a way as to see if they could get him to make a new rule. So, you know, they're just antagonists, you know, we call them. So, you know, there's whatever the, whatever the footwear was of the day, you know, they decided to add another layer of sole to the, you know, their, their sandals. So then, they, you know, they had two, two layers of sole. So the Buddha said, no, you can't have two layers, you only a single layer of sole. Uh, you can't have two layers, you can only have a single layer. So they put three. Then the Buddha said, no, 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 you can't have three, you can't have any more than one. Okay, so then they put a colored colored soul. And, and they just got the Buddha to, to make all these additional footnotes to each rule. So they were just, you know, they were real difficult people. They were, they were playful about it, but they were just, you know, kind of like that. Anyway. Now, earlier this afternoon, someone asked the question about, you know, we're going to go home, we're going to meet our domestic companions and soon we're going to go to work and we're going to meet our professional or work companions or our neighbors or other civic, social, professional groups and they're going to say, how's your retreat? So you might consider whether the time and the place is appropriate. Now, you know, a cocktail party is not the place to speak about the Dharma. It just isn't. Why? Well, because you're speaking what's important. You're speaking the truth. You're speaking something that you have a lot of faith in. And cocktail parties are casual. They're pretty, you know, and your words might be wasted. Somebody doesn't hear it. It doesn't take much to not hear what somebody's saying, especially at a cocktail party. So we should be careful how we speak about our practice, how we share our connection with the Dharma, how even we talk about our experiences here. They may seem so ordinary to you, but they touch your heart at the place of faith. And those who hear may not know that, they may not respect it, they may not be able to acknowledge it in you, and you get zinged, or your faith gets singed by their carelessness, their disrespect, their lack of caring, and you suffer. So protect your faith. Speak of the Dharma at the right time, with the right people. So that we can preserve our own faith. So when we speak with these conditions in mind, loving, gently, truthful, beneficial at the right time, we become a peacemaker. We're kind-hearted. We can grow in intimacy. We become reliable and trustworthy. We can be a spiritual friend. 
a benefactor rather than a bother. And we can become effective in the lives of others. So these are the conditions for careful, harmless speaking. And to remind you again, as William Stafford said, I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider. Lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark of our own heart and mind. For it is important that awake people be awake or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes, no, or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.